0: Uh,
1: who had the better career? The guy with the better bat. Remember that, young kids listening at home. <laughs> you wanna grow up to be a scout and you wanna evaluate prospects, bet on the bat ceiling.
2: Welcome into another episode of Baseball Americas from Phenom to the Farm. I'm your host, Kyle Banduho. Today, we're taking a trip down Baseball America memory lane. We are talking to scout for the Minnesota Twins and longtime BA staffer, John Manuel, and the current editor-in-chief of BA, J.J. Cooper. This is an episode that I have been bothering both of these guys to do for a while, something that me as a, a longtime BA fan Really wanted to hear, and something that I, I hope this is version one of many episodes. Uh, we're talking about their careers, how they got into covering amateur baseball, and for John Scouting. I uh, amateur professional baseball and in looking back on life at BA in the nineties and the two thousands, we're talking a lot in this one. It's kind of like a, uh, kind of like a Stefan sketch. This one has everything. It's got Vladimir Guerrero versus Andrew Jones as, as prospects, Some history of baseball America, the Mike Trout, Bryce Harper, Matt Moore debate, the 2005 draft, Nick Blackburn, Mark Pryor stories, Carrie Wood stories more. If, if you guys enjoy this, Please let us know at the Baseball America Twitter account or my Twitter account at Kyle Bandujo, like pester us, holler at us so we can make John and JJ do this again. Just a wealth of knowledge in this episode, their experience covering, you know, covering prospects, covering the draft, covering college, a lot of fun nuggets in here. I hope everyone enjoys this. I, I think that this would this will be a treat for any Baseball America fan. Uh, John had, quick note, John had some fuzzy audio early on. We caught him during his morning walk. So uh, part of the areas he was walking in had better reception than others. It's it's early on, and then he gets it it's sorted out pretty quickly. But hope everyone enjoys. Uh, episodes of from Phenom of the Farm. Drop every other Tuesday if you enjoy this one. Subscribe or ever get your podcast. Go check out past interviews. We are over 75 episodes now, so a lot of good stuff in the feed. If you haven't yet, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to subscribe to BaseballAmerica.com and the BA podcast feed for all amateur baseball and prospect news. With Pretty much everything is going on right now. The top 100's here, top 200 draft prospects are here, college baseball's going on, spring training has started. Just a great time in baseball, always a great time to be subscribed to BA. And with that, let's talk to John and JJ. All right, joining in for today's episode of from Phenom to the Farm, an episode that I am very, very excited for. Uh, two guests today, first time two guests on from Phenom to the Farm. He is a scout for the Minnesota Twins and a longtime BA staff member, former editor-in-chief John Manuel, and the current editor-in-chief of Baseball America, J.J. Cooper. Guys, thank you so much for joining me on from Phenom
3: to the Farm. It's great to have the gang back together again. Like, I, I think this is the <laughs> first John and J.J. podcast in, uh, in five years. Last one. Yeah, last we used one to, was a lot of tears. A lot of tears on the last one. I think
1: it was. There were a lot of tears. Uh, I believe the review on uh, on iTunes for it says that the uh, the, la- the manual farewell podcast was human AF. So, uh, <laughs> so I don't know if we're gonna I don't know if we're gonna live up to that uh, to that comment. I forget the commenter, but I'm forever grateful for that comment. But um, yeah, we used to just roll in and do them. You guys are
2: two folks that I've been trying to get on the show for a while. Uh, me and, me and BA Savannah McCann have had a lot of dialogue of trying to, trying to bully JJ and getting him, getting him on the show. Uh, before we dive in, John, I just want to confirm this is the twin year. Uh, Twins in 2023. I, ju- I just want to confirm with you that that is the case. I mean,
1: you're one of the biggest Twins fans I know who also doesn't hate Joe Mauer, so I appreciate that. Um, so many Twins fans are uh, oh, self-loathing. I'm about to
2: get uh, I'm about to get obnoxious on Twitter when they release next year's Hall of Fame ballot because <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm finding I'm I am i am finding i am i have always tried to be like a positive baseball fan and not criticize too many writers or players or anything i'm finding hall of fame voters home addresses phone numbers we're making calls we're yeah. we're, we're just, just, walking the block just proselytize to get, to get
1: just proselytize among twins fans too many of them see yeah. joe the wrong way but, but yeah we we've uh we had a i will just uh my official line is we're very encouraged about our off season we're really excited to have carlos correa back and uh I hope the Twins fans realize the commitment the Polad family has made to the franchise. It's a high payroll this year, and we have the top two picks of the 2012 draft locked up for the next six years. And they've both shown shown how good they can be. So, I mean, I'm not just towing the company line. I'm legit excited. It's February, and I just wish the season started tomorrow. I mean, I think most baseball fans think that, but I'm excited for the season, both my coverage and for the Twins. So, I hope we... I'm looking forward to a good year.
2: I mean, when I was 16, they they traded the best left-handed pitcher in baseball away, and now they're they're keeping their guys, and that that for me is that for me is enough. And they they brought in Carlos Correa, so I'm well, excited. But and back
1: then, what 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 that did though? That's a segue. I'm gonna segue Kyle because that made me rank my most unpopular Twins number one prospect of all time. They didn't have any prospects, and I ranked Nick Blackburn as the number one prospect. And Uh-oh. the correct answer in today's world, the correct answer would have been Carlos Gomez, who they got in that trade. But back then, we did a top thirty, and it was done. It was frozen in, in amber, and so Nick Blackburn was forever their number one prospect.
2: I still have faith. I'm still waiting for the Nick Blackburn break. <laughs> he had three <laughs> good years. He's
1: sitting in a chair.
2: He had three good years. I'm I'm, I'm waiting for it. Uh, waiting. For I'm it.
1: still I'm still in his corner. <laughs>
2: We're here to talk about you guys. Uh, we'll talk about some old BA stuff, uh, but first I kind of want to go into uh, a little bit of your backgrounds, how you wound up in, in this part of baseball this, this heavy prospects amateur ball. John, I, I want to start with you what what drove your career into deciding that a lot of amateur baseball scouting and, and eventually getting into baseball America like how did you wind up at BA?
1: I'll give you the very short version, which is um, from North Carolina, Went to School at the University of North Carolina. Uh, at the time, in the early 1990s, a BA staffer, Mike Berardino, uh, who later was a Twins beat writer, uh, now covers Notre Dame. Um, he, he's a North Carolina alum. He was at BA at the time, working with Jim Callis. And when he left BA, I happened to be dating his younger sister. <laughs> That's how I found out about Baseball America. I applied for the job at that time, didn't get it. They actually hired Will Lingo at that time. And then the next time they had an opening, I didn't get it. But the third time there was an opening, that I found out about it. Jim Callis just called me and said, like, we should have hired you last time. So Jim hired me in fall of 1996. And it was really, you know, I was a baseball nerd. But I was also a college basketball nerd and an NBA basketball nerd. I just was a sports fan and always wanted to be a, not always, I'd wanted to be a sports writer for a while. So that's how it worked out. But I was at BA for 21 years. I was editor-in-chief the last 12. So the longer you're there, the deeper you get in it. And that's kind of, and then what led to the twins was just happenstance, really pure happenstance. They had a pro scouting job in the Carolinas where I live. They were looking for someone geographically located here. I covered Twins prospects for a long time at BA, and I knew Derek Falvey from his time in Cleveland, and those two great tastes came together, and it's really just happens, to answer. now this is my sixth year, so pretty lucky and uh, pretty fortunate to work for the Twins.
2: I mean, I, I'm glad that you are putting in the good work to get the Twins back to the World Series for the first time since I was in diapers. <laughs> uh, JJ if if I have it correct your first job out of college was was on the minor league beat that Macon Braves job is that correct? Yeah I guess
3: technically I was hired to be the uh, the prep uh, the high school sports writer for the Macon Telegraph uh, fresh out of college and but that also came with it that you covered the, you know, the perfect timing right the, the high school season ends what are you going to do for the summer well we had a, a low class A team in Macon the Macon Braves and basically the first year so I started I didn't cover them in 94 I just got in they're like let's get you plugged in on the high school side first but then next year comes around 1995 and it's like hey we want you to cover the making braves and I picked up because I've been a baseball I discovered baseball America in college I had found it to be like I was I'd always loved baseball. I'd read the Bill James abstracts and kind of got into that in the 80s. And then I got into APA. Like I was a, one of my best friends, uh, who was the student SID for the University of Georgia baseball team. I covered the University of Georgia baseball team in school for the student paper. Um, he had he started up a appa assembly where you had 40 man rosters and you could, you know, so you needed to know prospects. And so that kind of ramped up my I I'd let like. Probably a bazillion other kids in the late 80s. I had gotten into baseball cards and so had first probably started to pay attention to prospects in the Greg Jeffries, King Griffey Jr., upper deck 1989 era. You know, I can picture that card, but then really got into baseball America. I was in a small town in Georgia. I, you couldn't find a baseball America anywhere. There was no newsstand to go find it when I was, uh, you know, growing up in high school, go to college. We had this great newsstand at the University of Georgia. I mean, which I know someone I, it dates me, but like there were a bazillion magazines, a bazillion newspapers. I could read the Sunday Boston Globe if I wanted gamuts, but it was in Baseball America. Got into Baseball America that way. I remember when I got the job to cover to the Macon Braves. First thing I did, grabbed my Braves top ten prospects list. Okay, which of these guys are supposed to come to uh, make it? and there were two main names there were glenn williams and andrew jones and ended up that andrew ended up being a little better than glenn nothing against glenn but uh but yeah i, I
2: and he was like 17 18 that season right he was like, se- he he fresh hit, teenager he hit three they both home work. runs
3: in a game yeah they both were but andrew hit three home runs in a game as a 17 year old before he turned 18 and i was at it was just one of the coolest things that I, I, I was like, am I getting to watch this every day? And don't forget JJ
1: also, that in 1995, that was the first time we met. Although I don't think we formally yes. met. We met, we could, we both covered the South Atlantic league all-star game that year in yes. Albany, Georgia home of the pole cats um, with a loaded Sally league uh, home run derby that included, you know, captain caveman, Ron, Wright, 30, uh, yes. 30 Rockies prospect, Derek Gibson, Vladimir yes. Ganero and Andrew Jones, all yes. in that home run derby. It was, uh, to quote Jim uh, Rome, epic. So and it was a, and that it was a was pretty was, great Sound League All-Star game that we met.
3: Also epic, although the, neither of us have any memory that we met. We just both know that we were there that day. Like, it's not I like, was kicked oh, I kicked out of the main going.
1: press box. I got there yes. late because I drove eight hours. So the main press box was full. So I do think I remember J.J. being one of the people who said, sorry, man, there's no seats in here. Like everybody was nice about it. I'm pretty <laughs> sure they had a case. they have a case of Budweiser up there? Like a I, That I don't Budweiser remember, but it stocks. would not
3: shock me. They, they I think needed I it because back in to get a Budweiser. <laughs> was there, there was no now. roof in Albany. Like if <laughs> exactly. you're in Albany, Georgia, they, they built a stadium, but they ran out of money to build a roof. So – I, I tell you for anyone who's never been to <laughs> Albany, Georgia, the idea of sitting at seven six thirty, seven p.m. on any night in July, June, July, or August in Albany, Georgia, with no respite from the sun is a terrible idea. And that was what the Albany Polkets
1: unless Vladimir Guerrero is in the game. But at the time we didn't know just how Vladimir Guerrero was the beginning. Like, so that, that was 95, like 96 when I started at BA, fall of 96.
3: So the, the thing that did stand out, so that's our first year, I think for both of us getting to cover minor league baseball at, at that level. And to have basically the Vladimir Guerrero senior Andrew Jones show all year, I, I was really fortunate <laughs> that was Albany and Macon. And so they played all the time and, I I got it wrong. I mean, I, I felt really comfortable at that point in saying that Andrew Jones was the better of the two, but that did absolutely give me the bug where on my end, I was like that. I want to, I want to I cover baseball. Like I, I, my dreams had always been at that point to cover like a baseball and a MLB baseball beat or an NFL football beat for a newspaper. And I think the seed was kind of planted that year that maybe I wanted to go in a different direction, even if I couldn't fully verbalize it at the time.
1: I'm going to throw in as a scout. I have to throw this in. There's a lesson in that. Bat ceiling. (laughs) Yes. Vladimir Guerrero had a better bat than Andrew Jones. Andrew Jones was better at literally everything else. I don't think Vlad ever hit 50 home runs like Jones did. He might have had a better arm, but it was more erratic. And Andrew Jones clearly the better defender and early career, the better runner, but who had the better career? The guy with the better bat. Remember that Mm -hmm. young kids listening at home. (laughs) If You want to grow up to be a scout and you want to evaluate prospects bet on the bat ceiling. That's just a a lesson that those two elite prospects hammer home.
2: He also had the longevity too. He played into his thirties and Andrew was cooked at, yes at 30 andrew which, is, which followed, is now hampering the hall of fame case it is
1: and andrew followed the i mean I, i'm not going to hammer andrew jones he just fell off after he was 30 years old and uh, happens to the best of us um but um you know if just a gentle slope i think he'd be in but not to get on a tangent it's going to be i think it's going to be difficult for him to get in the hall of fame with a 254 batting average and that's not or 337 on base i mean that's difficult if I were a voter, I'm not sure I could vote for him. It would be very challenging to vote for a guy with a 337 on base percentage. It'd be very challenging.
2: We need to have another pod yeah. that's that's Hall of Fame pod because I am big Hall guy. I am. Let's celebrate the stars. Let a lot of people in. We've already let. I mean, well, we've already let Harold Baines and Jack Morrison. So like, let's <laughs> let's celebrate people but the, who we liked. Watching. But
1: the writers didn't. Neither of those guys were writers' choices. So. I'm not going to lowest common denominator the as my rebuttal, the Hall of Fame. I don't think that he would make the Hall of Fame worse, necessarily, but he doesn't make it better. He's not Ron Santo to me. He's not like an injustice. If he makes it in, I'm okay. But if he doesn't make it in, I'm okay with that. You shouldn't have had a 254 career batting average with a 337 on base. You just shouldn't. He And as J.J. said, in 1995, it was obvious that his ceiling was higher than Vlad Guerrero's, but... I think the game came so easily to Andrew, but the point is to get back to this podcast, JJ and I were really lucky that we got to cover beats, minor league baseball beats um, for newspapers in the mid nineties as journalists, as a former journalist. I know JJ and I really agree on this, how much we learned JJ covering preps, covering beats like that, succeeding and failing and learning from the failure and having to be organized. I think that's, don't you agree that covering a minor league B and covering preps like that set us up for what was to come at BA?
3: It, it was great because you got to learn on a pretty low pressure, uh, yes, you know, environment. Like I, I taste this day. One of the managers I had two years. I covered the Macon Braves for five seasons. And two of those five seasons, Brian Snicker, now the Braves manager, was the the the, the make-and-braves manager. And what was great about that is, I mean, Brian Snicker is just an extremely good human I, in my interactions with him. But you learn from that kind of the day-to-day routine in a very... I mean, I was the only beat writer covering the make-and-braves, right? Like, it wasn't something where... I was worried about getting beat on things. So make an but evening same, sun
1: wasn't trying to scoop you.
3: Right. So But <laughs> at the same time, you also learn kind of like I learned baseball in conversations after games with Brian Snicker, with Nellie Norman, with the managers of those teams, because I was there every night. Like it wasn't something when I say that, again, this is where this has changed now because journalism has changed. but. I, if, if Macon played 70 home games over the course of a season, I was probably at 60 of them. Like every now and then I get, if they had a two week homestand, they may give me a Sunday off, which they did. And John Rocker threw a no hitter and it would be another uh, 20 years before I'd see, I'd cover a no hitter. Um, But noted great human, but, (laughs) but, but the thing about it was, is, is like, You got to know that, again, you were around the players every day. You got to understand how to, part of it, you got to understand how hard the game is. And I think that that's also important. Like it is, it is part of it is, is realizing getting to know people, the players and realizing there was almost no one there who wasn't the most accomplished player from wherever they came. Right. The player who was, Terry Vasky, who on that first year was the epitome of the veteran who did everything but wasn't like by low class A standards, great at any of them, right? But that guy was a great player where he came from. The thing about it is, is that very few players, again, it is in some ways a meritocracy, not all, but in some, and in some ways being a meritocracy, you would see, oh, this is the level at which this player has now reached his ceiling and he can't bust through this to get to the next level. And you would have players at the end of the year where you would be, you know, wishing them well in their off season and knowing I'll probably never that I'll probably never see that player again. And that player probably won't be in a professional uniform next year. And that doesn't mean, but getting that understanding that that doesn't mean he's not, great at what he does in comparison to so many other baseball players that's
1: a lesson i need to keep on reminding myself of uh, over and over and over again jj it's just too easy to forget um how hard the game is so the respect for the game i think i think we respected the process uh or we learned respect for the process from a journalistic standpoint but also respect for the game by being around it so much so we were both fortunate in that background so speaking
2: of something that's difficult, I was I was I was trying to figure out how to structure this and I wanted to stop with start with kind of what I think is the heartbeat of BA, the top 100, the top 10s. What BA has been kind of known for. When you guys get to BA late 90s, early 2000s, especially compared to now, lack of data, lack of video, just harder to see guys, harder to, you know, how at, at in those early you know in those years, how are you putting together this comprehensive top one hundred and top ten and having these debates because you can't see, you know, 19 year old who played all year in the Cal League
1: throwing on YouTube. Um JJ, you know, JJ how, needs so to answer this what, question. What went into see, that? He, JJ did the definitive oral history of the top one hundred. So JJ, you should you could answer this
3: question for both of us. The thing that stood out is, and again, I give credit. I think we both do to Alan Simpson and, 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 and really Alan is the founder of baseball America and his, it was a crazy idea. The idea that Tracy,
1: Tracy Ringlesby is the crazy uncle, but Alan Tracy Ringlesby
3: is the uncle of baseball America because he's the Owen
1: Lars to, 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 to what's his name, to Alan's Anakin Skywalker.
3: (laughs) No, he's the crazy uncle, but, but even like in 1990, like the way that they were able to do this in 1990, really, I want to say, by the way, in 88 also, they did a top, the the, the lost part of this is, is Baseball America did a top 50 prospects in 88 and then didn't do it in 89 and then went, okay, we're going to the top 100 in 90. And so like we celebrate the start of the top 100, but like there had been like this proto list in 88 and and they were top 10s
1: back in what 82 yes. it the first time Allen did top 10s. Yeah.
3: But but so with all of this they're reporting that they did. Like I do think that that it was a perfect blending of time and, you know, opportunity in that if you go back to the 80s when this all started at Baseball America. Allen and his the staff at Baseball America were literally the, it, I do mean literally in this case, I'm not using figuratively, you know, literally we're the only people who were reaching out to farm directors and scouting directors and minor league coaches and saying what you have, what you see is valuable and we care. And so what that meant was it really was a case of not only, Hey, you actually are paying attention to us. It's great that someone is surfacing all this stuff that's going on that was just flying under the radar. Because do remember like in the mid eighties, the early eighties, no one was going to minor league games almost anywhere around the country either. Like my favorite version right. of this is Vince Coleman set the minor league stolen base record in a stolen base race. You had two guys on other ends of the country who were going for the minor league stolen base record. And if you take away the players and coaches on the field, the night that Vince Coleman set the record, you probably there's probably less than seventy five or hundred people in the world who could say that they were there that night because that's how few people were coming to minor league games in some of these cities.
1: And I, I go to I scout Lynchburg yeah. and I like going to Lynchburg's ballpark. I just think it's a nice throwback ballpark. And I've asked people every year when they're older people there. I ask every year, uh, did you ever come here to watch? Dwight Gooden pitch, and they were like, "Oh no, I wasn't coming back then." It's like, you know, Dwight Gooden, the guy who threw 190 innings in a minor league season with 300 punches and, and 112 walks, by the way. I was like, I've never run into like I've run into Brandon Inge there and asked Brandon Inge, "Hey, like, did your dad like you know your family was like, oh, we'd come to games, but no, nah, none of them ever talk about yeah, I was there when I when Dwight Gooden did this. It's like, Dwight Gooden struck out." 300 dudes in a minor league season and it's fun in like, fact someone who was there
2: my dad because he was at lynchburg college when dwight gooden was at uh was pitching for lynchburg and daryl strawberry was there. that
1: is awesome with a capital a i mean that's really that is awesome uh i did not i did not know that but i mean like it was when you read about old Durham Bulls and like they bought the team for five thousand dollars basically fifty thousand something crazy like that some tiny sum and they got 5,000. It was $5,000. They got $50,000 from the town to fix the stadium and they were finishing the paint. And then they had opening night and it was like a line down the road. And they were like, wait a minute. People actually came. That was why that was an anomaly. I mean, that was, it's probably why Ron Shelton it's one of the reasons why he actually went there. People actually cared about minor league baseball in Durham. And that's, you know, Miles Wolf is who bought baseball America and brought Alan Simpson down from Canada but to try to move us along, even though it's an awesome story, I will say that I didn't get to work on my first top 100. I started BA 96. I didn't get to work on my top first top 100 until like, God, it might have been 2003 that I got to sit in on a meeting. I know it wasn't instant, but Alan, that, Alan had, I, I was lucky enough to work with Alan on the college side. and Alan did have a crazy process that was crazy thorough, crazy good in that in an era that was not an information age. Alan put these checklists together for our college stuff. And I, I know my first top 100, he encouraged me to do one like I did for college. So I kind of did like a proto spreadsheet, but I'm not very good at spreadsheets. Um, But he, it would just be like, here's 150 names and some key stats like Alan would do. And he had scouting reports, but you know, Alan had been doing it by that time for, you know, 15, 20 years. I was just kind of starting, but uh, JJ, I don't know if that came up in your, research of nope. the original top 100. but Alan at least had a process for his own information gathering process, but I don't know that Ken Liker and Tracy Ringlesby who were with him on the first top 100 if they had the same process.
3: The, the other thing that that John said there that I think is very important is is like that's also changed with with baseball America is the same way. Like I came to baseball America in 02. and I was allowed to touch independent baseball, independent League baseball international edit the international section and that was pretty much like okay and by the way I think in your like after I came in September and the next year they're like we'll give him low a low class a I got to write a feature every you know every every issue or whatever right well, but it technically
1: was like, JJ was technically hired as a copy editor that's why yeah. he replaced John Royster had been like our top copy editor and the only writing that he'd been allowed to do was high schools so we 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 were a little bit more siloed back then, JJ. To use the current vernacular, right?
3: And we were. And the other thing I would say with that is, is to kind of go what John said. Like, but top tens, top thirties, top hundred, that was like. And this is, I think, a key a key part of this is is like, by design, and also by appreciation by me. You were like when you came to BA, you were basically like a kid at the Thanksgiving dinner. Which was you were seen and not heard. Like you would sit. That in was the definitely meetings. the
1: Alan ethos. There's no question about that. If you didn't demonstrate a level of knowledge to sit at the main table, you were at the kids' table. That was. I mean, Alan. the story that Jim always tells me that Callis always tells me is that in a meeting in my first year, I asked whether or not if, if Sandy Koufax was dead. And after the meeting, Alan was like, "Oh, good God!" You know, I'm the Zoom. I'm taking off my glasses, but Alan was like. Uh, Like he told Jim, like, (laughs) why do we hire this guy? He thinks Sandy Koufax is dead. I think actually in 1997, that's reasonable because he was, you know, Sandy Koufax had dropped out of public sight and there was no internet and the Dodgers weren't posting pictures of him on the regular, (laughs) you know? So he was kind of out of sight, out of mind. And then I know one of the other staffers who will remain nameless, I think asked what team, I think it was Bobby Bonilla, like what team Bobby Bonilla was on. And at that time, Bobby Bonilla was very much on a team. He wasn't a punchline. He was very much on a team. In fact, I think he was on the team that won the world series that year with the Marlins in 97. Um, the point is Alan was, uh, just gobsmacked by the level that we didn't bring enough to the table as young staffers. And so that really, that, that ethos was there. And that's definitely one of the things that had to change when I became editor, Will Lingo, and I became co-editors in chief and, Spring of 2005, we did democratize things a little bit more. We did go web-centric a little bit more at that time, for sure, compared to what we had been. And I'm not throwing shade at Alan. I mean, Alan did insane, amazing, wonderful things and gave JJ and I a chance to have dream jobs because if he doesn't start the magazine in his garage in Canada, none of this happens. But um, that process was, they were working with less information. And the great thing, I think JJ will agree with me, about Alan is with less information, but with more work ethic, and just uncanny feel for the game. Allen was really stinking good at ranking stuff in the 80s with less information, so oh. much so that there's that great story about Sandy Alderson going to the o- Oakland A's top 10 and picking out prospects when he traded. I forget who they – I mean, going to the Mets top 10 and picking out prospects when the A's traded somebody. I, I forget Ricky exactly Anderson. who we traded. It was,
0: it was Ricky Anderson.
1: the. Hooter, to the the blue jays or to the yankees it was to the yankees that's what it was yeah he was with oakland they traded ricky henderson to the yankees and he basically went to the baseball america top 10 and asked for five guys and got you know so i mean that's we're we are for, we are standing uh on the shoulders of giants at ba I, you know, I i did for 21 years and number one on that list was uh, alan simpson i would say no jim Callis, who's obviously still obviously still at it at MLB uh, pipeline and you know, if if you're doing a Mal Rushmore VA, those two guys at JJ are sure on it. And I hope I'm on the, I'm hope, I hope I'm one of the four.
2: So the top 100 has a long legacy and I will say I have a million questions, but we have time constraints. Yes. And
3: but we will exceed them. We will exceed them. And we just, just accept that. <laughs> I said like, Hey, can we do this for an hour? No chance. We're doing this in an hour.
2: None. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. So the, the, I wanted to at least get like one debate in, or or just hear some stories about a certain debate for picking number one. And the one that came to mind for me, and it was I was in college when it happened, was the the Trout, Harper, Matt Moore debate. That that one stuck out for me. But I'm curious. I will kick it to you guys first. Is there a a tighter number one overall prospect debate from from y'all when y'all's time coincided it? At BA, I mean, and looking, it's pretty incredible. I guess JJ gets to BA at 2002, the Josh Beckett year. That every one of these players is a hit in some regard. I would say minus two, one being Jerickson Profar, who is still having a good career, just got, I mean, when he rotator cuff twice, yeah. And then there's Delman Young, who uh, Twins legend, Delman Young, who just, yes. it just didn't, it just didn't happen. So I, I'm curious, are there was is the Trout Harper more just the most popular debate, or was that also the most hotly contested debate?
1: What's the most hotly contested
3: one, JJ, from when we worked together? I actually, that one always does stick to me because that. I think that's where, it. Where, I mean, the the funny part about it is, is, and this is how the human brain works. In hindsight, I remember the agonizing over Trout versus Harper, and I don't remember the agonizing of where to line Matt Moore up in that list, and. I, it, it's funny, we just posted something at Baseball America this week that said, that asked the question that said, will there ever again be a number one pitching prospect? I mean, a number one prospect in baseball who's a pitcher, right? We haven't done it in 17 years. Daisuke Matsu is the last pitcher who ranked number one in the top 100. And to some extent, I do believe that the Matt Moore, Mike Trout, Bryce Harper debate is probably the one that that about killed that dead because John like the thing I remember about it is is like if you drew up a pitching prospect Stephen Strasburg and Matt Moore in that era were kind of pretty much you could draw them up I felt like well Matt Moore
1: I think the the problem with Matt Moore, I don't even think we ever thought Matt Moore was at that level. Strasburg would have been the one, or David Price. Those college aces, that's what I think a lot of how BA has evolved, and even how it is now. Like, I came up at Baseball America writing about college, and then the draft. Like, my first article that I really liked was about the draft, about a former football player, Mount Olive College, or North Carolina, who became an eighth-round pick. I think his name was Curtis Whitley. I mean, like, or writing about Ryan Drees, you know, from the 97, like I got to write draft notebooks. Like those were bigger deals to me than sitting in the dugout with Mark DeRosa and interviewing him about having played quarterback at Penn. And like, in retrospect, it was a bigger deal to write about Mark DeRosa <laughs> being a quarterback at Penn. But I was jacked about those draft articles. So my background is more college and draft. So when I was editor-in-chief, I feel like I was – really focused on college and the draft still, even though I, those weren't my beats anymore. Just like JJ, really his biggest focus has always been prospects of BA, so I really feel like his focus now and BA now is really prospect heavy, even heavier than it was when I did it, and I think that's kind of reflecting both of our backgrounds. So, Matt Moore didn't neatly fit into that, into, into either, I mean, none of those guys did. They were draft guys, like Harper had all the draft hype, but You know, Matt Moore was a high school pitcher. I think what put Matt Moore into that discussion was that playoff performance against the Rangers. And I remember my argument at the time was, this guy is closer to his ceiling right now. He literally is a number one starter in the playoffs for a team right now and is prospect eligible. If not him, who would it ever be? And the answer, as JJ just said, is nobody. (laughs) It's not going to be... Anybody, because like Matt Moore is very comparable to Blake Snell. And if he'd even had Blake Snell's career and we had been named him the number one, I think we'd be okay with that. But it would still pale in comparison to Trout and to Harper to be a number one prospect pitcher and live up to it. You have to just be a total outlier. I mean, that's the crazy thing. Scherzer and Verlander, those guys are complete and total Outliers in today's game, the role of starting pitcher has declined, like JJ wrote in that piece. Uh, If you're lucky, you throw 200 innings, that's a workhorse. I mean, speaking for the Twins, we're pretty psyched about picking up Pablo Lopez with his 180 innings thrown last year. I mean, our number one, our our innings leader last year was Joe Ryan with 147. So 180 innings would be, be very excited, I think, about having a pitcher be healthy enough to log 180 innings for us. But um that, that was where it came with Moore. Harper, Trout, I think we all knew that those guys had higher ceilings. But my point at the time was that Matt Moore was doing it. He was at his peak. And as it turned out, he was at his peak and <laughs> he did not sustain it. And he's still a free agent now. So I can't say anything else about
3: Matt Moore. That that's the thing that I would say. Like thankfully we did not rank Moore number one. And to go back, I, I will point out we did not rank Matt Moore number one. I,
1: I did on my personal list. Yes. I will, I will admit. My personal list has him one. I I think I had Trout three, and my scouting was so good back then that I was basing that on BP in the Fall League when I went to the Rising Stars game that year. The BP group was some fourth guy who I seriously do not remember, Will Myers, Bryce Harper, Mike Trout. And I came back from the Fall League telling JJ, you better run Will Myers up your Royals list because he put Bryce Harper and Mike Trout to shame in BP, which he did. And he was just insane, but JJ had seen the future of rock and roll, and it was Mike Montgomery. So that's who you rank number yeah. one. And, yes. and Jim Callis yes. was, uh, you know, I really think that Bubba Starling got seven and a half million dollars. You probably should rank him number one. Mm. So, so anyway, so we had a that was a big argument. That was actually a bigger argument than the, the number one top hundred. And I think Kyle, an important part for people to know is that some of the biggest arguments at BA are over who's one forty-seven of the draft top five hundred. Honestly number 1 on the top 100 is easier. Sometimes when we're arguing over like the top the like, we used to have I will one great meeting tidbit in 2008 when Matt Blood current farm director for the Orioles was our draft writer, we had this knockdown drag out argument over the top 500 and it lasted forever. We did we adjourned that meeting at 2 or 3 in the morning eastern time. And continue to the next morning because one of our writers at that time was on the west coast but those guys were arguing tooth and nail about like 261 versus two like this guy at 300 what's the difference of those two guys that's the beauty of ba lists that's why they're so good it's because it's not just number one who matters who number 58 is matters or who's number 300 on the BA 500 we I think this is still true. <laughs> I'm not in the Wii anymore, but I keep using it. But in my 21 years, we cared about all those rankings, JJ. And I think that's still the case now. You guys still care about all those. And that matters who's number 27 on a top 30. Every single ranking matters. And we always try to put as much care into it as we could and hoped that the readers figured that out, I guess. I don't know how else you, I don't know how you make and- them figure that out other than constantly trying to do your best list player by player, ranking by ranking.
3: And the thing that we want to do is like you asked the question earlier, Kyle, like how it's changed and things that has changed is, is that we now have more, more to argue with. (laughs) And best way I could put it, which is like, like, It's funny, like I I want us to do a a study of effectiveness of top 100 rankings and all that because I do think that those lists, they should be better now than they were in the 90s because we have an accumulative knowledge. Like It is not something where we start every year knowing at, at, at ground zero, we start We now know, like we go back to, if you look back at the early years, like I said, there there hasn't been a pitcher who ranked number one in the last 17 years. We've been done 34 top hundreds. Now, if you go back to the, you had Brian, Steve Avery, Brian Taylor, guys like that, boom, 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 boom. You had had seven pitchers rank in the top number one in the first 17 years. And part of that is, is that, when you see pitchers get hurt, when you see pitchers go backwards, like Matt Moore, you could argue that Matt Moore was the best he ever would be in his first MLB, you know, the start against the Rangers in the playoffs on essentially no MLB experience. That was the best that Matt Moore ever got to. He was already there. You could say going back to the Dwight Gooden pitchers can often be their best at 2022. I remember saying on a BA Steve podcast, Avery.
1: Steve Avery, Steve, JJ.
3: But I remember when Steven Strasburg, like is still up at Baseball America on the podcast, Steven Strasburg debut. We did a podcast that next morning, uh, John and I. And I remember almost being winsome on it of saying, treasure this. I mean, to say, they just go to Banner Brothers, earn the, like, but treasure this. Enjoy watching him as he is because I love that you was,
1: went Tom Hanks on that. I love
3: it. But, but there is, there is no guarantee that he would ever be better than that. And I do think in some ways, yeah, Steven Strasberg's had a very good career. You know, injuries have kind of derailed him recently, but as far as pure stuff, he didn't Successful. he didn't match
1: that peak, JJ, until until game seven of 2019 World Series exactly. or Game Six, whatever it was. It's amazing. K- we didn't see it again for nine years, in my opinion. And I, I pro scouted him. I pro scouted him in 2018. He was pretty stinking good, but he was better on his debut. It's probably
3: in my report. <laughs> Kerry Wood. Kerry Wood in Kerry Wood as a rookie was the best that Kerry Wood. All these guys, pitchers can do that. You don't see that with hitters the same way in many cases.
1: Kyle, I'm going to give you a quick Kerry Wood story real quick. VA Kerry Wood story with it. 1998 regional last year, the 48 team tournament, 18, 16 regionals, meat grinder in Clemson. I was there with Lacey Lusk, VA staffer. I covered the regional uh, Friday night, Clemson, South Alabama, 16 inning epic game, South Alabama wins. Clemson has to play USC the next morning in an elimination game. Seth Etherton, eight innings, 15 punchies. Clemson eliminated. Lacey and I get in the car that night, drive to Atlanta. Smoltz, Wood, Turner Field. It was awesome. Carrie Wood and John Smoltz. And then the next day, went back to the regional. Got to see Brandon Inge pitch. a play shortstop for VCU against South Alabama and Juan Pierre. Uh, and then Jason Lane, uh, another <laughs> all-time fave. Pitches five innings in the regional final. Jack Krofcheck goes the last three and two thirds for the save. Southern Cal wins the regional and goes on to win in Omaha in my first trip to, uh, to the college League series in 1998. So Kerry Wood, I only got to see him once, but that is like an all time baseball America weekend. And, for see,
3: me. I, and that that's the summary. Like the thing that we are fortunate at baseball America. And I always say this, like, like we've become work from home now we had an office and we got shut down and like the thing i've said is it's like when i see all this work from home debates and where versus office and all that and a lot of it comes down to management not you know like oh we worry that our people working you know hard and getting their stuff done and all that and at baseball america that's never been an issue just what john said right there right did they need to go leave from after <laughs> to go see a major league game. No, they didn't need to, but at baseball America, if we the people we have at baseball America, it's like, I remember uh, being at a, uh, you know, in Chicago with Hudson Belinsky, who, you know, then became a, a, a D-back scout had, actually was a signing scout for the number one pick in, in last year's draft. And Drew, for Drew Jones, Jones. Right. But player. Hudson and I are in Chicago for the Under Armour All-American game. And, but, like, we don't have anything to do. We've gone to done the workouts for Under Armour that day. The game's tomorrow. And we're like, the Cubs aren't in town because they do the Under Armour game at Wrigley. But the White Sox are. So let's go. And we so we go to the White Sox game, which actually was the game that Chris Sale was supposed <laughs> to pitch. Great story. But but that, that was the uh, tear up, tears up the jersey uh, with the scissors. Oh, the scissors.
1: Yeah.
3: And <laughs> scissor
1: me timbers game.
3: <laughs> and and basically but that's the summary of it is is that and I don't ever want to lose this. I've been at baseball now, here's America. the summary.
1: The summary was in 2014 when we went to the futures game, an all-star game in Minneapolis. But JJ was like, I'm taking you guys to an indie ball game and we went to Midway Stadium in uh, Saint Paul the night before Absolutely. watching Joey Gallo go ham in the in BP and break the truck in my field at Target Field. So um Or the other side trips, I mean, like like Clint Longnecker and I, going a day early to the Under Armour game in 2013 at Wrigley Field, so we could see Steven Strasburg uh, in his year coming back from Tommy John. And the uh, rookie for the Nationals, Anthony Rendon, was the starting shortstop that day for the Washington Nationals as they blew a lead to the Cubs. I mean, there's so many little side stories, side trips like that, that you make because um, in the Allen Simpson parlance, you have passion for the game. And uh, if you don't have that tool, you can't do a good top 100 prospect ranking. You can't do a good top 10. You have to have a little passion for it to care about who's number 18 versus who's number 19, in my opinion.
2: Yeah. You actually led into a transition for me,
1: I'm, I'm trying, man. Because I hosted a lot of you,
2: podcasts. Well, you... Well, you, so you talk about, and you and I have talked before, like when I was prepping for the Phil Umber interview, uh, we talked about you, you walked me through some, some O3 Rice stuff and like covering those teams and covering, you mentioned Mm. the Stanford team of that year that you like to cut. Yeah. That you like to cover. When you guys are having these debates in office, like some of these, you know, some of these players are West Coast players, something, and like you have more personal, you guys would have more personal experiences with some of these players. Like I saw, you know, I saw Jason Lane pitch in a regional, and like when, how is it? Do you have to put bias at the door when evaluating a player? If like I saw him on his best day, or I, you know, I saw him do this, I saw him do this. <laughs> I haven't seen this guy. You're telling me this other guy is better, but I, I saw this guy pitch his team to, you know, to a super regional or something like that. Like how, when those debates come to a head, when you're facing off against, you know, you haven't seen guy a, but you've seen guy B how, like does, does, can that get testy?
1: Kyle, you, you raise a great point. We've had a lot of bias training with the twins. I was just talking about this with a uh, former BA staffer, Alan Matthews, who's a cross checker with the Dodgers. And we had lunch recently about bias. We talked about this over text and at lunch. We wish that we'd had that bias trading before that because so many of my quote-unquote best (laughs) or read worst calls at BA were because of bias. Uh, Justin Verlander, not on the top 100 in 2005. Now, I don't remember. I think part of that is that he had just signed. I wish I could say that he signed so late that we did the top 100 before he was officially signed, but I don't think that's the case. I think actually the case is, I covered college national team in 2003 when he got into a fight, the dugout with Dustin Pedroia, which I didn't know until 2011. But when everyone on that team, not everyone, most of the people on that team did not like him and thought he was a five cent head. I had a Jethro Bodine comp on him, which is a Beverly Hillbillies reference for those who don't know. That's the guy who called it the cement pond for the swimming pool. So that's what people thought of this, gangly hard thrower from Goochland, Virginia. And I thought he was a reliever, and I convinced people not to put him on the top 100. I argued strenuously against him on the top 100, which is, in retrospect, a mistake. (laughs) I think we could say that. (laughs) My My bias clearly led me to advocate for Daisuke Matsuzaka, who I saw pitch twice in the Olympics in 2000, including the first game of the 2000 Sydney Olympics, where it was Daisuke versus Ben Sheets, one of my all-time favorite stories were Dice K threw 139 pitches, I believe it was 11 in the third innings, and he was not icing his arm afterwards, and an American reporter asked him about, like, why wasn't he icing his arm in America? They always ice their arm, and Dice K talked about a minute and a half in Japanese, and the translator took a second to take that in, leaned into the microphone and said, Dice K says he does not believe in ice. And that was it. <laughs> that was the answer. So I was biased pro Dice K. He was 19 back then. I was biased anti Verlander, not as a person, just my sources. Uh, I had information asymmetry and I would say, JJ, I think it's fair to say there've been some leaps in BA over the years. And I would say probably the first leap was just Alan Simpson, just doing the magazine and realizing how much there was to, to learn. I would say a second leap was when Jim Callis and Alan Schwartz worked the BA and brought their intelligence and their passion and their processes to bear on Alan and BA. I would say a third leap was just having a website and realizing what we could do with a website. I would say another huge leap in BA was uh, Clint Longnecker. Maybe I'm skipping one, but Clint, well, Josh Boyd, I'm skipping Josh Boyd, Josh in the late 2000s made us go to another level with our prospect rankings that what hand in hand with the prospect handbook starting uh, which Jim launched but Clint took us to another level I'd say he brought us into the data age maybe not the information age but the data age and also thinking about these things like biases like information asymmetry like you're ranking that guy high but that's because you know more about that guy you need to try to learn because you know so much about that guy you need to really learn more about everybody else and uh so that information asymmetry led to i think alan honestly alan handled information asymmetry better than i did because uh he had his own other biases but they really seemed like they weren't necessarily judged by what he knew more about it was judged by what he you know his feel for the game he just had crazy feel but it took me a while to uh trust my own feel but um I don't know JJ, if you want to use that as a jumping off point, but I think biases have led us uh, in a lot. Nick Blackburn, I saw him throw forty some. I thought, saw some of his. Uh, I saw some of those scoreless innings in Durham. Jason Pridey. I saw Jason Pridey so good for, for Durham before the uh, Twins got him in that trade. And the Twins told me, "Hey, I think we actually do think Pridey is just as good as Denard Span." He wasn't. <laughs> Denard Span was better. Denard Spain would have been a correct answer on that. Nick Blackburn, top, t- top 30. He was number 20 that year, but, uh, retrospectively, and I'll talk if I, I will really break down if I talk too much, but the late great Mike Radcliffe told me I was in retrospect. He said, I was being used to fire up Denard Span that year, but he said, realistically, you still should have had him behind Pridey, because they liked Pridey better. But, uh, if I talk too much about Mike, I will get emotional. So I'll mute now and let JJ finish that point.
3: So the thing I would say with that is, is like, This is also a key part of the baseball America process. Like there's two other parts of this. I think that are important for all these rankings that we do, which are one, it is a very collaborative effort. And so when John says like, I, this, I, that it is true. But at the same time, what is great about it, having just finished another top hundred, the top hundred that is there is not what I think the top hundred should line up. There are things where I disagree with it. The top 100 is not what Kyle Glazer or Jeff Ponce or Josh Norris or Ben Badler or Matt Eddy, or it's not of any of us. It's not our top 100. And the great thing about that, our top, the top 40s in, you know, the top 30 in the handbook, things like that. None of those are, here's how I have it. And it goes straight in. We have to talk through and basically, justify our rankings, right? And the thing that's great about that, and the other part of it is, though, is so like we just finished the top 100. We all put together our top 100s, and that gives us this very rough here's a top 175 or whatever.
0: Yeah, I and don't remember
3: then, when we started
1: doing it that way, but that Jim Callis definitely used to make us do that, JJ.
3: Whereas before,
1: like JJ's right. right. It's more collaborative. It became more collaborative over time. I would say in the early two thousands, late nineties, it was more like an NBA team. Here's your big three. And you know, 40% of the time, Alan has the ball. 30% of the time, Jim has the ball and 30% of the time, whoever else is in the meeting has the ball, but when it's crunch time, Alan gets the ball. <laughs> that's kind of how things ran back then. I think that's, I think it did become more collaborative and we used to send, Send your top 150 to Jim and Jim will put them all on a spreadsheet. But even then it was a little animal farmish. Sometimes Jim would some some people some some animals are better than other animals. You know, it got it got it got there there were some uh, there were some weights in the algorithm there. So
3: and but the other thing we do now is, is so we get to that rough list together, right? And then we go out and talk to people we know in the industry to basically tell us where we're wrong. I, Don't We don't need to hear, hey, you're really right on that. It's nice to hear, but right doesn't help you that much. Where you're wrong really helps you because we're not trying to say this, the Baseball America Top 100, the Baseball America Top 30s are not trying to say this is, it is our opinion. Our insights are part of that. But more than anything, we're trying to, as best we can, reflect what the industry knows about these players. And so there are times that we'll have guys in the hundred who I'm like, I do not believe in that player's trajectory. However, if enough people in the industry say you should have that player there, then you need to have them there. To give an example from this year's list that I think was useful. And John will stay muted for this part because he can't talk about current players because, but when we started our process, Jackson Holiday, the number one pick in last year's draft, was was pretty high on our top hundred. And we sent it out. And one of the most consistent pieces of feedback we got from not from Orioles officials, but from different people from different teams all around Major League Baseball was: I'd run Holiday up higher. Holiday has a chance to be better than this guy, than this guy, than this guy. And so We ended up like, okay, we're just kept moving Jackson holiday up. We just kept moving them up. And so that's also, and that goes back to Alan Simpson. That has always been part of the process, which is, is that it's a collaborative process that tries to meld. We use data a lot more in our hundred, in our rank, in our top thirties, in our draft 500 than we did 30 years ago. Why? Because the industry uses data a lot more than it did 30 years ago. So what, that's we're trying exactly to right. do, what we're trying to do with all of this, we love scouts, we love scouting. It's the, the bedrock of baseball America, but we also talk to analysts and we also talk to, you know, we, we use statistical analysis and all that. Why? Because if you don't do that in 2023, in no way are you reflecting the industry because that's when we talk to people in the industry, that's a core part of how they do this process. In JJ just hit,
1: JJ hit on the biggest thing, which is the 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 magazine's ranking process has had to evolve with the industry, and the industry's evolved. JJ is really good at going back through old like media guides and like, tracing like, wow, this is a year where the A's had four scouts, <laughs> you know, like under Charlie Finley and things like yes. that. And you know, the Twins didn't start a pro scouting department as a separate department. I don't, I don't exactly remember which year, but like Vern Folliwell and Earl Frischman and Ken Compton, I think it was like late 2000s, like after Mike Bradcliffe became vice president of player personnel, not just scouting director. Before that, it was just one staff. Everybody did amateur, and then you did some pro stuff after your amateur stuff was done. And wow, I mean, I think a lot of the industry was like that. Maybe not until the late 2000s, I do think a lot of the industry was like that. So when I first did my first top 30, it was a, I did the giants, I think in the blue Jays the first year. And I got the scouting director for each team and the farm director, and I got somebody else. And then usually are outside the organization back then. You could talk to a pro scout who had coverage of that organization, or a lot of times, uh, you know, some of our lists back then, uh, Alan Timpson was really into minor league league identity, which was a thing in the late 1990s, or at least sort of a thing. And we did league top tens back then. They weren't 20 till later, I don't believe. But if you did, uh, you know, if you had the Blue Jays had an affiliate in these other minor leagues, you had, you know, what uh, reporting from those leagues. Oh, you know, in the Midwest League, uh, the Midwest League managers really liked this player. And that would be a lot of your, you know, 1999, 2000, 2001. That was a lot of your outside the organization reporting. I do think there's a lot of uh, misconception in the public sphere that BA was all like a mouthpiece for the clubs. And that's just, I don't think it's ever been true. Maybe some lists were 80 or 90% internal like information, but I don't think that's ever been true that it's, you just talk to people in the organization. And I mean, one of the years I had to do the Mets top 30 and Tony Bernazar was the farm director and <laughs> that wasn't easy to do. Um, Tony was, and the Tony was a great guy. I sat next to him for a couple games in Sydney cause he worked for the union and he was there. So I thought he'd be an amenable source. I even had him on my retro fantasy team. He, he, we talked about it in Sydney. So I thought he'd remember me, but he wouldn't talk to me. I wound up talking to 11 sources in the Mets and out of the Mets organization to do that top 30 because I didn't have one guy to go over all of it. Meanwhile, you know, you do another organization and you know, doing the Astros one year, I had one source who he gave me two and a half hours on the phone because he was like, I want to make sure you get this accurate and do as good a job as you can. Mike Radcliffe was like that. That's why he talked to a lot of media people because he thought it was important that there was correct information out there. And he, Bill Schmidt with the Rockies, another guy like this who, they were like, look, I don't, I'm not going to tell you everything, but I want you, if you're going to write the story, I want it to be accurate. And I'm going to help you write it accurately from what I think is accurate. So um, I think there's a misconception out there that, Early BA lists, or even ten years ago, BA lists that we were a mouthpiece for teams. And I don't know, JJ. I just don't think any of our processes was ever like that in the twenty-one years I worked there. Even for our outside, even for some of our correspondents, they might have been a little bit less plugged in outside the organization. But that was
3: our job as the editors was to bring that outside perspective, right? Yeah, and I think it was always again, the, the industry process, you had to cross-check, right? Yeah. Like, there's, there's value from talking to people inside an organization. That's something that we get to do that, like, I, again, I, I think of Baseball America as both for fans, but also for the industry, right? Like, if we're doing our job at our best, Baseball America should have value to people who work inside of baseball. And if we do our job well enough to be credible for them, then we'll also be valuable for fans, right? Like, if we're yes. if we're doing it at a level that's useless for the industry, to we can't dumb it down just to be to the level that fans understand. We want fans to move up to that, but we want to provide insight to where it's like this is as close as you can get to getting an insight from what it would be like to hear it from inside. Well. To do that right, you do get insights from talking to people inside an organization about their players that you can't get from people outside the organization. But at the same time, you also have an understanding that the information that they are giving you sometimes is going to understandably carry with it, you know, maybe a rosiness, you know, or things like that. And that's where you cross-check it with people outside of an organization. Everyone like this is human nature. Like, we've never ranked an organization 30th in our farm system talent rankings. I've never gotten a text or a call after that. I'm sure John hasn't either. Where the last or the, the team that we rank last, dead last in farm system talent, calls up and goes, You're you dead nailed it. <laughs> We are we are awful. You are absolutely <laughs> right. We just Man, it's a disaster here. You know, there's never a home
1: it, star runner phone call saying great job. That never ever right. ever happens.
3: But but at the same time, and I've again, I try to sometimes reach out in advance and I'm like, "Look, if you want to yell at me, yell at me. That's fine. But understand, we're doing this from a process where we're not just pulling it out of the air either. Like What I've also not had, and this would be important, is I haven't had someone, when I'm just talking to people I know in other organizations, if they said to me, you've got those guys dead last, I I think you're kind of way off base on that. That would be, like, and again, I've I've listened to people, like, I will happily talk to people inside an organization, give your pitch of where we're missing. Like, if there's information that we don't have, I want to know it, right? Like, but... But at the same time, this is like, often you do get the the number one organizations like, yeah, you're right. We're we're great. We, you know, because every organization is going to feel good about their players to a level because they have more information. But at the same time, part of that is, is that there's never, ever such a thing as a farm system that has no talent. So you could be 30th and you have future big leaguers in your organization and you can be 20th or you can be 10th and have some really good players in it. We're again, we're trying to do the best snapshot we can.
2: I mean, that's, that's the bias thing too. These are like, these are our guys. We drafted these guys. We got Like we know these guys, like guys, it's like a Dallas Cowboys fan. The Cowboys are notorious for like, they love their guys. They extend their guys. They keep their guys around. Like it's kind of that thing. You, you just, you, you love what, you know, Um, I'm going to slowly start kind of the rapid fire <laughs> portion because we are, we're on time. I, I wanted in, in, I just want to I want to put this out there. I would like at some point to do a deep dive on the 05 draft. I'm always so fascinated by the 05 draft. But draft. kind of start that out. For for listeners, I feel like anyone who is still listening to this is very familiar with the 05 draft. But for listeners, Justin Upton goes 1-1. And in the first 12 picks, it includes Alex Gordon, Ryan Zimmerman, Ryan Braun, Ricky Romero, Troy Tillewitzki, Mike Pelfrey, Cameron Maybin, Andrew McCutcheon, Jay Bruce. Loaded draft. Did you guys have a guy in in that draft? Because you you know, I'm sure you guys have fallen in love with guys in drafts before, me I mean, like I would take that guy 1-1 one, one, or 1-2. One, did you guys, did, did you guys each have a guy in that draft?
3: I, I'm going to let John take this because I didn't, I was, again, this was, I was still, I, I was, I had training wheels at this point. I was not allowed near the draft at this point. My opinions would only have been from reading John and Jim and uh, 05, Alan Matthews Simpsons. and all reports. Simpson, Simpson and two. Matthews, yeah. Yeah, I, I would not-
2: also in that first round. Jacoby Ellsbury, Twins legend Matt Garza, uh, Colby Rasmus, and and Colby Rasmus's dad,
1: um, all you know, all go in that <laughs> okay, first round. The Rasmus family gave BA so much vernacular, but the longest running one is Joker. Calling players Joker, a hundred percent a Tony Rasmus vestige, and I use those in my reports a lot. Still, I will still say this Joker doesn't know what he's doing or
2: I, mean, I I I had a question. I had a question that we will say for a future pod on just dealing with parents of players. Tony Rasmus. So we will. Uh, we
1: loved. I mean, <laughs> Alan Simpson. I mean, Alan Simpson. Alan Simpson and Alan Matthews. We were all about the Rasmuses, and uh, that team was epic. <laughs> I we could you you should get. Uh, I don't know if you want Colby on a podcast. I digress. The 2005 draft. That was um, either the first or second year that I did a region. I did the Southeast region um so basically like the states of the former confederacy (laughs) that's how i think about everything uh was my draft region um so that would have given you a bulk of
2: this top top 12 So
1: yeah so i so i remember i wrote about like the southern fried lefties that might have been 2004 2005 was comparing and contrasting the high school right handers that people liked. that was like cody satterwhite brian morris and uh, some other joker, <laughs> I forget. It. I mean, then none of them turned out very very well as a point. Um, that draft was also a lot of guys from college national team 2004, which was an epic team. Um, the toughest guy to read was Ryan Braun, because we had all these rumors of why he'd been kicked out of the Cape Cod League the previous summer. I will just say that the future of his career and how it ended, was pres- presaged by what happened to him in the Cape Cod League. I'll let you guys connect those dots. But those were the rumors we heard. So, But Ryan Braun was always awesome to deal with for me in Omaha for those Miami teams in 03 and 05. So I was really uh, conflicted. I, I wanted to like Ryan Braun, but the guy eventually – I, I, maybe this sounds self-serving. I was down on Jeff Clement. I always thought we were a little overheated on Jeff Clement. He never dominated the Pac-12. And I always thought we were a little light on Ryan Zimmerman because uh, I went to Charlottesville for in 2004 when he was a sophomore, and I was all about, like, man, Joe Kashansky and Mark Reynolds, these guys are really good. And Clemson assistant coach at the time, Kevin O'Sullivan, was like, nah, Ryan Zimmerman, that guy's incredible. Watch him. When he was a sophomore and then that summer for college national team alex gordon showed up with all this hype and he just i believe he just led nebraska to omaha no maybe it wasn't until 2005 either way gordon was supposed to be the guy and i just remember him being like well, what do you mean i'm not going to be the third baseman he had to go play first base because ryan zimmerman was so good defensively so now at the time i don't think i put as much value on the fact that ryan zimmerman also was 20. it was not going to be 21 till like september october november he was young for that draft year but i i really liked zimmerman Tulowitzki was the funnest guy ever to watch take in and out for me and that's still probably true because in and out for college national team his arm was just so bonkers um but i remember being on the wrong side of the cam mabe and andrew mccutcheon debate I think like the industry we wound up being maybe 10, McCutcheon 11, maybe it was just so much bigger. I think it was just easier to believe that eventually he'd hit for more power and have a better career. and ultimately, I think my favorite player to that whole draft is Kutch. Uh, even though his peak you know ended a few years ago, the guy's still a productive major league hitter and was such a dynamic player and a franchise cornerstone center fielder kind of guy at a time where drafting high school players was out of fashion. Um, so uh, I, mean, I love Ricky Romero because I'm a Titans homer. I remember Alan Matthews was huge, huge fan of Chris Volstad. Um, from that draft, he wound up being the Marlins first rounder. And Jacoby Ellsbury had made such an unimpressive uh, impression the previous summer with college national team. He couldn't drive the ball, save his life. Um, but I remember interviewing him prior to the couple series in 2005 and being like, this guy's got some, uh, at the time, I guess I wouldn't have said swagger. I, I just thought he had confidence and he really convinced me. Um, I, I, I thought he was better. I thought he'd gotten a lot better, but, uh, I'm just trying to look, scroll through that draft. Oh, my other favorite player was Junel Escobar because of his crazy story of like, he became eligible like a month before the draft and reporting on him from South Florida being draft eligible was, uh, it was quite challenging to try to figure out what are we going to do with this guy? <laughs> you know, how do we rank him? So
2: those are some, and then you've got next year's next year's one, one going 40th overall in uh, in Hochaver. It's just, it's a fun draft. I mean, I,
1: I reported I a lot on Hochaver at- that, that fall with the whole contra attempts of Diddy or didn't he sign <laughs> with the, with the Dodgers? And boy, I bet the, the Royals wish they had signed the previous year with the Dodgers.
2: The BA draft database has hampered my career productivity so much. And <laughs> like my day job, just cause like you, it's just the, the ultimate wormhole of you can fall. Like looking, it's interesting. May signed for like 700,000 more than anyone drafted after him. Like him and Kutch go back to back, but maybe got two six and Kutch gets one nine, which is, which is interesting, but okay. I want to run through the rapid fire cause we are bumped on time, but we're, so we're going to get are we'll I'll throw something out. I want JJ to go first and then John. Okay. Okay. And I, I've got quite a few. Okay. okay. Favorite, favorite draft pop-up guy or like pop-up story. I've told you both. My white whale for the show is Colt Griffin. <laughs> so like a Colt Griffin type pop-up guy.
3: Ooh. Oh, favorite. I have too That's many. To... Yeah. Go ahead, John. Cause I'm going to need to think for a second.
1: Well, I mean, my favorite is Hunter Renfro from his high school year i mean <laughs> he just was like a tall tale it was 2010 and miss i love writing about mississippi high schools uh i think i wrote one year that mississippi was like america's third world boy fans of mississippi sure didn't like that I mean, the fact that the capital of their state doesn't have clean running water kind of buttresses my point but i digress um but Hunter Renfro in 2010, where the tales of his home runs were epic. Um, and then uh, the story of the high school doubleheader playoff series that he played, where a lot of scouts came and the opposing team intentionally walked him, whether it was six out of eight at-bats or whatever. And a scout walked down to the, to the uh, chain-link fence and yelled to the opposing coach, Coach, I'll buy you a steak dinner if you pitch to Renfro. And of course they still <laughs> intentionally walked him and then he had to take BP for the scouts there post game. He might've thrown a bullpen too, but I mean, and he was drafted out of high school by the Red Sox didn't sign wound up at Mississippi state, but he wasn't even committed to Mississippi state. When I was writing about him, I wrote a column about him and as the genre of the pop-up player. And uh, I think it's still there in the BA archive somewhere, but I would say, the fact that I'm still Facebook friends with Hunter and told many stories about his hunting exploits, I think I have to say Hunter Renfro is my all-time
3: favorite pop-up player. Okay, that that may give me a chance to think of mine, which is I, I remember like Andrew Benatendi, it doesn't sound like that's a pop-up player, but he really was. So That is no, yours,
1: That is yours, JJ.
3: Because Benatendi had had kind of a, eh, you know, like a, a freshman year, I think injuries have played a part of it, but he hadn't really done much. Yeah, he, had, he had a wrist um, injury that
1: precluded him from yeah. playing summer ball as well. And it sapped his power and, during the season.
3: And so then he goes out for his draft eligible sophomore season and really kind of goes off to start the season. And I remember like really kind of being enamored by him watching, you know, again, this is back. This is when college games started to be available on video. You can watch the games. And I remember I was calling like a, a high level scout for a team. And I was like, am I wrong to think that Andrew Ben is like, working his way into like the first round, maybe even the mid first round. He's like, well, it's funny. You caught me. Like I'm literally driving right now to go see Ben and this weekend. I think you're right. And I'm like, okay, I felt good about it. It was like, yes. And, and at that point it was like, yes, he should be in our first round consideration. And he just kept moving up. You know, that was also the first
1: he, year JJ that you were one of the primary draft writers for us. Like the, yeah. you had primary state coverage, so it just tells you how good J.J. is at all this stuff. But, I mean, he'd been a B.A. for a while, but the draft is a big matzo ball to, get, to wrap around. And J.J. jumped in, and the industry lagged on Andrew Benintendi, and J.J. did not. So I'm just going to give J.J. the props that he deserves, because we could have been late on Andrew Benintendi at that year, where I had a first-year draft writer and hudson Balinski, was like 21 years old. I just lost Clinton Longnecker. I'm using the I, but I mean like because, but like yeah. Aaron, you were, had you were running PA. the draft. Yeah. I was running the draft with two new jokers helping me, <laughs> and I was fearful of that draft. And uh, you were on it with Andrew Benintendi. So, thank you. I've
2: got another one. It's kind of draft related. Best amateur you have ever seen,
1: Mark Breyer for me. I went to I went to. Southern California in 2001 and uh, did a weekend It was an awesome weekend. I saw Pryor against UCLA on Friday. I saw Noah Lowry and uh, Dan Heron pitch and hit in Heron's case for Pepperdine on Saturday against the university of San Diego. No Twitter legend, Dan Heron. I think it was university of San Diego. Yeah. I think Rich Hill just started at USD. And then Sunday I saw Kirk Sarlos. Now the coach at TCU, uh, Pitch for uh, Fullerton. It was a great weekend. Had some fantastic ribs. Had a rib joint on Crenshaw Boulevard in L.A. Stayed the day's end near the LAX. It was bonkers. It was a very Baseball America weekend. Had a fantastic interview with Pryor. But Mark Pryor, I mean, I blame Hesop Choi for Mark Pryor's failures, for running into Mark Pryor and ruining him. But uh, Mark Pryor was, at that time, in that context Mark Pryor was pretty epic Um, I feel like I've seen someone better since then but I still like to say Mark Pryor I will also throw in two other amateur experiences I really enjoyed we're watching Chris Sale long toss pregame at Campbell the anger of his pull down and the ball hissing through the air like just gets me jacked up right now I love long toss and Chris Sale's long toss was I just want to use all the expletives right now? It was just so awesome, and John Savage letting me watch the end of Garrett Cole's bullpen in 2010 in Omaha at Rosenblatt, the last year of Rosenblatt, and Coach Savage trusting me to watch Cole's uh, bullpen on the side mound. I'm getting emotional just talking about Rosenblatt. That was awesome. Garrett Cole's last few pitches were angry, my friends. It was that was a great experience.
3: I, I'm gonna go with Adley Rushman, which I know is relatively recent, but Adley Rushman to me was was one of those players where I know that like there's always gotta be like the debate oh who goes with number one or whatever, but I felt like I, I really did feel like that that was the closest thing to Bryce Harper, Steven Strasburg, where it's like there's no debate about this. This is like the epitome of what you look for. I I just kind of came away from it like. From seeing Rushman, you know, in Omaha and all that thinking like, how is this not the best draft prospect in years because he was athletic. He had a track record of offensive success and in a well-rounded offensive success, work counts, hit for power, all that. He was a catcher and there was no debate about like, this wasn't, Oh, he's a catcher. Now Zach Collins was a catcher in college, but Zach (laughs) Collins in college was like, you know, was a guy who you're like, I don't know how much that's going to be as a catcher, like an impact at the big league level. That was never a question badly. Rushman. And on top of that, you had the leadership. He was this leader of this great college baseball team too. So you had everything that you could want in a guy and I mean, I do remember saying at the time, like, because that was, I remember Carlos and I talking about I was like, because you hear scouts, scouts would say like, that's ah, an okay draft. Like, this is not an okay draft. You can't have Ad- Adley Rushman at the top of a draft, especially when it was Adley and it was Bobby Witt and it was CJ Abrams and it was Riley, Riley Green. Was like, this, the top of a draft can make a draft a great draft or not. That's the part where I do think like, We often get focused on the depth of drafts. And yes, there are drafts where like you can take guys in the fourth round that you like better than you like guys in the third round another draft. But more than anything to me in a draft, give me a draft where a Bryce Harper is at the top of it or an Adley Rushman or something like that because if that guy hits, it's a good draft.
1: In retrospect, J.J., also the best amateur, the literal best answer, Kyle, is I did see Justin Verlander's first college start. At Duke, he was pretty freaking good that day for Old Dominion. Obviously, I saw him for college national team. The other two memorable ones I want to throw out there, I did get to see because uh, I worked in Hickory and I lived in Hudson, North Carolina when I first worked in Hickory. So I did go back to Hudson to watch South Caldwell High and to watch Madison Bumgarner. That was a blast watching Bumgarner. And then in Durham, never made the big leagues, but Jason Naborgal, first time I ever met uh, Scott Boris. Uh, I did not realize, I mean, he was not wearing any of his Sith Lord regalia at the time. So that's just a joke. Just an easy joke. He's going to play into the nerd trope that I've already set for myself here. But watching Jason Naborgal JJ school, tipped me off on him. No, uh, Jason Naborgal was crazy good. Um, and his catcher could not catch him. And uh, I always wondered if the fact that Riverside High School in Durham did not have a catcher capable of catching a 99 mile an hour lively fastball at that time. I mean, like nobody, no high school probably should have, you know, in 1999, he was a complete anomaly. Um, but I wonder if catchers having such a hard time catching him helped lead to his uh, difficulty in finding the strike zone. And he is an all-time draft what if for me and uh, had a little modest success at Georgia Tech, but it was fleeting. but uh, was a seventh rounder to high school to the Red Sox in 99 i think if i'm not mistaken and then uh, maybe it was 2002 i forget what years and then he was drafted out of college by the diamondbacks out of georgia tech and just didn't go well but you know, he's played on a travel ball team that alan simpson uh coached so you want to talk about bias i mean he was he was legit a special arm but ba was always going to be high on jason neighbor let's be honest
2: He's on, the, he's on the list of guys to track He'll never do
1: show. it, I don't um, think, because I don't think he ever liked <laughs> baseball. I just think he had to do it because we'll he see. had a
2: golden arm. Well, that's, that's kind of my other white whale trying to, trying to track that one down. Uh, okay, J-
1: Johnny, you might have already answered this, but player you were most wrong on. I mean, Justin Verlander from the top 100 is one of them. Yeah. But, I mean, JJ, you probably remember my greatest misses. <laughs> more. I would say Eric Duncan is high on that list. I ranked Eric Duncan one and Robbie Cano two. In the Yankees top 10 the first year I did the Yankees and Mark Newman another uh uh moment of silence from Mark Newman but he never let me forget it either all the years subsequent to that he asked me so who uh who'd Turtle Thomas tell you to rank number one this year so this Turtle had been a big source for me on Eric Duncan so that's one and uh, as far as since being a scout with the Twins I cannot comment <laughs> I, I've
3: had some big I mean, misses I- here too there, there are two that come to mind. I think the John mentioned one of them and it's not like Mike Montgomery didn't end up being a big leaguer. He, you know, won a world series ring, all that. Right. But I saw Mike Montgomery and again, this was formative for me because he was, I better, than, Mike he was better
1: than Bubba Starling, JJ, at least that. Right, but I that. never
3: was, a, I never was as big a believer in Bubba. Like I know. I, Bubba was, Bubba was a guy who from the day that That I remember I was sitting at an HSI and I heard that Bubba Starling wasn't breaking camp with a full season club for his first full season. And and I'm like, oh, there's still some things we want to work. on. I called a Royals person I know. Oh, there's still some things we want to work on. I remember thinking at the time, it's like, that is right there. Like sometimes we have hesitancy to make snap judgments. That is one that, that I just live with over and over and over and over. It's very important to me, which is, is, Pace of development tells you something. And if a top 10 pick is not ready to break camp with a full season club in his, especially back then, right? Oh, we're going to hold him in extended. Yeah. You've already basically lost the plot because
1: Mark, Mark also JJ, you were instantly, uh, and it had nothing to do with makeup. You just instantly had
3: good stuff was not good enough. This guy is not. Yeah. That I remember like Mark Appel went to the Midwest league and I had multiple guys. Like one guy, I remember putting it to me, said, if he ends up being Jeremy Guthrie, that would be a very good outcome for him. And this was like, Kyle, this is just, just the-
1: to let you know, baseball, America, lore." it's all I can do to not do a uh, Eddie Vedder impression. Now that Jason, that, uh, that JJ mentioned Jeremy. Yes. Guthrie. Cause it, <laughs>
2: but, uh, but the, so that would be is Jeremy Guthrie, a big Pearl jam guy. No, but I used it to. It does be. not
3: matter to John, but John, any <laughs> Jeremy, any Jeremy got the uh, Jeremy line from from John. But that was
2: Mar- a- Mark Appel is one of the the few guys that I had insight on as knowing someone who faced him early in the in the low minors, and I talked to that person, and they were like, "I can't believe that that guy went one one." He was like, he said he had the flattest fastball, I've and ever seen.
3: see, this is where this leads into my second one, which is I would say Riley Pint. I remember we had a podcast before that draft. It was like, who would you take 1-1? And I said, Riley Pint. And here's what you, like I was, I was all about velocity. Like, and I think it was useful. Like I started BA in 02. And I, there's always been this bias about, especially among fans. Fans love the idea That this soft tossing pitcher in the minors is going to be great. They want it to be right because I mean I think it's almost like they because everyone can picture themselves more like the guy who doesn't have stuff but knows how to pitch and all that, right? Yeah, I think it's less
1: the velocity. Is I think I think that I think they like guys who dominate in the minor leagues, and they are more Mm -hmm. interested in the in the
3: what than the how. So and, that's how I would characterize it. And what I would say is I always would like, do not come to me with the pitcher who knows how to pitch, but especially this is in the 2000s and the early 2010s. Don't come to me with the pitcher who's like, he's 88, but he really locates. And I'm like, nope, as a prospect, I'm not interested in those guys. They generally so Kyle, JJ was know. not
1: interested in in, in uh, Nick blackburn That's what he's saying. That's a shame.
3: But... <laughs> But the thing I would say is, is that then where I probably went a little bit too far is I was special arms felt like something like really unique to me. Like when you had a guy like Riley Pint who threw a hundred and could spin it, I was not focused enough on the pitching with those guys, especially because that was just about the time where we discovered, again, you learn throughout this. We discovered, as you know, I discovered, I should say, but I think baseball as a whole discovered, oh, velocity is actually, we have ways to develop it now, and command and control are harder to develop. And so one of the things I think that happened with that is, is that like Riley Pike Pint throwing a hundred became a lot less special over the next 10 years, whereas a guy who could spin it or a guy who could locate and was 92, 93, who then becomes ninety seven, ninety eight. 98. That was something that I don't remember nearly as many of those stories in the 2002 to 2006 range as I do in the 2015 to 2023 range.
2: This is actually one of my rapid fire questions okay. that I have for you guys. Who, so I, I went back and forth, and the, the first ty- way I typed out the question was who is the worst current pitcher? And like I say, worst, like professional baseball players are all good. Who is the worst current pitcher who could go 1 1 in like the Matt Anderson year or in the early 2000s? And then also, like, what, how many years would Ben Joyce have gone 1 1?
3: So, okay. <laughs> so, like, so basically, I'll answer this one so that, so that John doesn't have to because it's current players. But that's a great point. Like, that's the part where I think people I get angry about this also. They don't want to admit that present players are so good. And they they baseball always has this dream that, like, no, whatever era I grew up in or three eras before that was the best. And if you took Ben Joyce and you put him in 1980, like, we would have to burn him at the stake as a witch.
1: <laughs> yeah. Probably true. Uh, that said, 2007, Casey Weathers went eighth overall. I mean, college, there was a run of years where despite Matt Anderson's lack of big league success, being a college closer through 100 or had dominance allowed you to get drafted really high. Of course, with the exception of... Houston Street which I just don't understand how he didn't go higher he was like the 40th overall pick and if it was on my personal pref list Houston Street might have gone 1-1 in 2004 because I love that guy and he missed uh yeah like uh what's the uh what what, how did what's his name put it how did Hawk put it WTW baby will will to win that was his best stat WTW so um but yeah I mean like In that period of time, I think Ben Joyce would have been a first-round pick, honestly, J.J. Um, Matt Anderson was the witch you were talking about. He he was. We had never seen a college pitcher throw 100 miles an hour, I don't think, until Matt Anderson for Rice. And the fact that he was doing it for Rice, and the fact that his teammate – was Lance freaking Berkman hitting 20 bombs from both sides of the plate in the same year. And that guy went 16th and Matt Anderson went first. So if Matt Joyce had been there in 1997, he would have gone one, one. He would have, I mean, Matt Anderson was that much of an outlier back then. So it, it, I think about it that all flows. the time,
2: seeing pitchers pitchers with their stuff now and just like how much money would that guy have made in you know in the, in the 03 draft? I
1: mean, Matt Anderson was in the big leagues the next year. He gave up one of Sammy Sosa's home runs. The He might have given up the home run when Sammy Sosa broke the record for most home runs in a month in 98. I think he did it in Tiger Stadium off Matt Anderson because I remember watching that game on WGN and being like, holy cow, that guy was just in the draft last year, <laughs> you know?
2: I have a, I have a poster over there in my office of Sammy Sosa and all his home runs that year. And I, I could, I could fact check that Um, because of time and John's phone battery. I have three, I have three more rapid fire questions and we're just, and then we'll, I'll let you guys get out of here. Favorite minor league ballpark.
1: That's a tough one. I mean, I did love going to the old DAP. I love going to Durham. I was going to say that was on my list
3: too. That's
1: yeah. on my short list. I mean, we're biased because we're here, but uh, Durham
2: has been has won that question more than I think any other park in this podcast.
1: My sneaky other one is I do like scouting. Uh, like I said, I like scouting in Lynchburg, it's a throwback, it's old school. I found good places to eat. There's a really good coffee shop in downtown Lynchburg called the White Heart H A R T that I really like. Um, so that's one of my favorite trips to make, but yeah, Durham is. Great to go I, to a game too. Great to scout.
3: I, I would say Midway Stadium, which I did drag John and others to when we that had the All Star game in Minnesota, because it, it's basically a dive bar. I, it's the only way I can explain it. Doesn't
1: <laughs> that, ex- that's St. St. Paul,
3: yep, right? Yeah, St. Paul. Paul that was yeah. and that it, was built. It's a dive like, bar. Hey,
1: we're going to build this park, and maybe the maybe the Washington centers will move to St. Paul, and then they built the stadium in Bloomington and moved the Twins there. And St. Paul was like, oh, so. That was Midway I, Stadium.
3: It it was a like it, it, sham, shamble lost, shamble, you know, tastic or whatever you want to call it. it shambolic. Was terrib- shambolic. There we go. It was terrible, but it was terrible in a way that had character. And the thing that it was, is that the performance they put around it, basically was made it feel like, yes, this is a dump, but it's our dump. Enjoy.
2: I like that. Uh, best Durham food spot.
1: Mm, I still love the original Q Shack. I mean, original Q Shack. I mean, uh, old-school Bullock's Barbecue. That's an old DA. We'd finish an issue. We'd work 10 days in a row, and we'd finish an issue, and we'd go to Bullock's Barbecue where it's served family-style. So they just bring you bottomless bowls of barbecue, fried chicken, Brunswick stew. I put on many a pound at Bullock's Barbecue back in the day.
3: I, I, I agree both. I agree with both of those. I'll also throw in Chubby's as a newer place, like just a barbecue, a, a burrito joint. I do love a I do love Mexican food, and like they have guacatillo by the metric ton, and you can have as much see, as you I, want.
1: Which and see, I like Cosmic Cantina in. better as a Mexican place. So
3: we di- we diverge on that. So the the thing I would say though, he that John summed summed up there, that's also the difference between BA then and now is because we were a magazine in t- 2002 when i started ba we basically worked till we got the magazine out and then like if we got the magazine out at noon we shut down until the early next the next week so like, except for the college that never stopped right but so but like we would go bowling on the afternoon that we sent the magazine or we would go to the movies or we would go for a long lunch or whatever and then we turned around, and I, I guess by like 08, 09, I would say it was like, no, this is a 365-day a year, you know, seven-day a week type job. Because now the website was, in, we weren't just putting the magazine stories up on the website, and so now, if if a baseball trade happened, we were going to write about it. Whereas before, it was like, well, we'll get that into the next issue.
1: It definitely started changing. Once I'd say it also started changing when everybody had kids. Lingo had kids. I had kids. You know, it started changing when that happened. That was part of a change.
2: Last one I've got for you guys. Who is your favorite all-time BA number one prospect?
3: I have to say Andrew Jones because uh, that was where I felt. Oh, back to back. That was where I felt like that, like, I, again, I was getting to watch greatness. And I got to cover that World Series in 96 where he basically, you know, was challenging mantle records, you know, as far as, youngest to Homer in the world series, stuff like that. And I had just seen him the year before in Macon all year. He played in Macon the entirety of that season. It's actually where I met Will Lingo when he came down to do the, the baseball America minor league player of the year story about Andrew. And that was like, I felt like that I was part of a special club because he was now being presented to the world, but I had gotten to see him and gotten to know him the year before when no one knew who he was john that's a good answer
1: uh i think i'm contractually obligated to say that it's a tie between joe mauer and byron buxton <laughs> 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 but no seriously i, I you yeah, know i'm not sure i have a favorite but i will say the intriguing one as i look at the list all time is probably rick Ankiel. i did get to see him pitch in lynchburg in 1999 I mean, I've talked to the BYU coach, Tripp Pratt, about trying to catch Rick Ankiel when they were on the college or uh, the high school 18U national team back in 1997, 96, something like that. Rick Ankiel, just special arm, magic arm. I mean, just go watch his highlights of him playing center field. And people, and- the, the, the people who only know him for what he did in the playoffs, imploding and falling apart like that, the mental toughness of that guy to come back as a hitter. I'm going to say Rick Ankiel.
3: Great story. And a perf- and a perfect example of why again we've been also seven- Rick <laughs> Ankiel number 1 prospect and another reason why pitchers will not rank number 1 again.
1: Maybe we should be saying left-handed pitchers because Matt Moore. more. <laughs> so, put
2: putting out the call, Rick Ankiel, answer my message on Instagram. Um, guys, I normally end this podcast. I normally end this podcast saying that's all I've got for you. That is not all I've got for you. Uh, <laughs> I am going to bully both of you into coming back and doing this again, and we can talk about some other topics. But uh, thank you both so much for joining from Phenom to the going
1: I must say, good luck going to your regular job, Kyle. That's why this job is—you know—so <laughs> working at Baseball America was so much fun for 21 years, and uh, the other reason was working with people like JJ. So
2: yeah, but my call at 10 will be much different than this call.
3: Again, it's it, I, I the funniest thing about this is is that I said, "Oh, we'll do this in an hour," which was the like one of the like worst in any any prospect ranking I've ever done was the prediction that you could put John and I on a podcast and we would keep it to an hour.
2: I've had phone calls with both of you separately, and I would have bet one of my pinky toes that this, <laughs> this episode would not go an hour. So, uh, thank thank you both, and we will do this very very soon.
1: Great awesome. podcast, JJ. Great pod. Thanks. Thanks, Kyle. See ya. And that's
2: it for today's episode. Big thanks to John and JJ for taking the time and joining us again. If you enjoyed this one, tweet at them, tweet at me, bother them, tell them to do it again. Uh, Episodes of being on the farm job every other Tuesday. So we'll catch you in two weeks. Thanks for listening.